You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.5, No Such Thing as a Free Lunch, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I am calling on Suzuki Yumiko to emerge from retirement and write the next Gundam series. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and feeling an odd sort of kinship with Judo's desire to never work for anyone else. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 419 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Cardboard AK47, Krim Ryo, Tim C, Anthony T, Trans Cyclist, Hyper Viper 89, Patrick N, Alejandro D, Cody T, Saragnell, Jonathan E, Mephistopheles, and Morgan B. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And we have to take a moment to thank you all for a very successful Podversary promotion. We added 75 new patrons and 15 existing patrons increased their pledges. We promise to keep working hard to bring you the best Gundam podcast we can make. I have a few special acknowledgements to make this week. Keen-eared listener Mongoose Ninja correctly pointed out that I did make a mistake during the introduction last week when I called Judo's Decision the fourth episode of Gundam Double Zeta. It is, in fact, the fifth episode. I would also like to acknowledge keen-eyed listener Turluk, who pointed out that we had a typo in the name of one of our Patreon tiers, and that said typo had been there for about a year and a half, which is my nightmare. As a reward for pointing out our mistakes, we are issuing each of you an advanced new mobile suit part developed by our in-house research and development team. Make sure you install it in your Gundam's memory banks to dramatically increase its performance. The Temray Prize for nitpicking. This week we are covering Gundam Double Zeta Episode 6, The Zusa Menace, or Zusa no Kyoi. After the recap and our talkback, Nina has research on Don Quixote and how that classic story may have inspired Mashima, his version of Haman, and Gotten. But first, let's tune our receivers once again to Radio Free Shangri-La. Brought to you today by Texas Colony Brand Steaks. Enjoy our full range of authentic Old West-style beef and beef byproducts at your local grocery. And by... Bajak's Discount Wholesale Junk Emporium. Take advantage of our big flashy sales every day of the week. And now, back to As the Colony Spins. A sleek black Elicar glides to a stop in front of a grand old mansion. A beautiful young woman dressed in mourner's black emerges from the back seat. 
Her loyal butler meets her at the door. Oh, Mistress Bethany, welcome home. How was your visit to the hospital? How fares the dashing and magnificent Lieutenant Hector Pariah, wounded hero of the Titans? It was awful, Guildenstern. Just awful. He just lies there all day, staring off into space. Oh, how dreadful. Oh, it was dreadful. They told me that he once seemed to wake up and even reached out to grab one of the nurse's hands, but then he relapsed immediately and there's been no progress since. Frankly, I doubt it happened at all. I demanded they let me speak to the nurse in question, but they told me that no one has seen her since, so I think they just told me the whole story to give me some hope. But I'm afraid it didn't work. It didn't work at all. I'm the most distraught I've ever been. The doctors have tried everything. They even put him on an experimental all-milk diet, but nothing is working! But Mistress Bethany, isn't Lieutenant Hector lactose intolerant? Why, Guildenstern, you credulous buffoon! Lactose intolerance is a myth invented by the anti-milk union group. But oh, I can't bear it anymore. Let's do talk about something happier. How go the preparations for my party? Oh, Mistress Bethany, it will surely be the most memorable event of the season. No expense has been spared to ensure that this will be the most lavish masquerade that anyone on Shangri-La has ever seen. I should certainly hope so, Guildenstern. After all, this is my best chance to find an eligible man who will love me for me. Someone who can look past my family's fortune and see me for who I really am inside. A gorgeous socialite who throws the most lavish parties in the whole side. Now, about the guest list. We'll have to invite all the best families, of course. And don't forget about the officers on that Zeon ship in port. Oh, and send an invitation around to Mr. Darmar's office, would you? He's the most frightful bore, but it wouldn't do to offend a man in his position. And let's see. Hmm. We'll invite the executives from the Colony Corporation, senior executive vice presidents and up only, of course. Of course. And Margarita. Uh, surely not Margarita. Gildenstern! She is working on herself, and it is important that we support her at this. They are interrupted by a startling ring. Oh, that's my private line. Hang on a moment. Hello. Oh, my God, Margarita, we were just talking about you. No, 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 nothing bad. Why do you always assume it's something bad? Okay. Aha. Uh -huh. No! Oh my god, Margarita, no! No, you can't date him. You are a grown woman and he is practically a child. Besides, I think he's into some weird religion. I overheard him praying to some goddess named Hummer Hummer or Herman, something like that. Uh-huh. No. No! We'll talk about this later. I love you. Come to my party. Bye! Now... Where were we? Ah, yes, the guest list. The trail was cold, and I was burning through that thousand gila advance, grasping for leads like I was trying to catch smoke in my hands. 
It didn't make sense. Punk kids jacking mobile suits aren't known for caution. He'd want to roll it quick, but who's going to buy a hot suit still in Ayug colors? So he's got to hide it, but where? And who's doing maintenance? I checked for crane rentals in the area. Nada. Smoke. So I dig into the other one, the mobile worker. Rental job from the Bajak and Sons lot, but the kid paid cash, and nobody remembers what he looked like. Junk dealers union found it crashed in the scrapyard. Nobody around. Now, a wreck like that could lay a man up for weeks, so I checked the hospital. But searching for an injured teenager among the wounded from the Argama is like looking for a needle in a needle stack. I need a new angle. Scrapyard kid looking to make some quick cash is the obvious perp, but I need to think bigger. People like my client always believe it's the little guy out to get them. They think every maid is out to steal the silverware and every poor kid in the street is a pickpocket. But they look the other way when a rich brat goes off for a joyride, drunk off bottles stolen from his daddy's wine collection. By now, I bet he's dropped a briefcase full of cash on some corrupt colony official and thinks he got away clean. He's feeling safe. And that means he's going to start making mistakes. I need to be there when he does. And tonight, all those snot-nosed uptown kids will be at the same party. They're already calling this one the event of the season. Normally, they'd never let a guy like me past the manicured hedgerow, but tonight... Tonight is different. This one's a masquerade. And for one guest, it's going to be a night he'll never forget. And now the recap for The Zussa Menace. Damar, the same corrupt local official who accepted a bribe to allow the Indra to dock at Shangri-La, is meeting with Mashima and Goten. They want to enter the colony with mobile suits in pursuit of the Zeta, and Damar is full of concern. There would be public uproar if any part of Uptown were damaged. There could be riots. But his concerns are easily put to rest with more money. He mentions that they should be ready to suppress the media in case something goes wrong, and Mashima seems confused at the very notion. Goten, armed with plans and projections, tells Mashima that he can go and leave the negotiations to his trusty lieutenant. Meanwhile, Judo and his friends and sister eat a meal aboard the Argama. Shinta and Kum eye the lunchboxes hungrily, but when Lina asks why they aren't eating, they claim that they ate before. L marvels at the accommodations aboard, air conditioning, heating, and each room with its own bath and toilet, while Mondo annoys Astonaji by using tools without permission and asking if he can take a piece of the Zeta's plating to fix his roof. When Bright arrives, he addresses them courteously and formally and asks if they'd be willing to work aboard the Argama while the ship remains in Shangri-La. Their meals would be provided, they'd be paid a wage, and they'd have the option to stay on and go with the Argama to space. 
I'll even discuss it with your parents, he says, making them laugh in his face. None of them have the sort of parents they need to clear things with. Elle is the first of them to say she's in. Going to space sounds like fun. And the rest follow suit in turn until they reach Judo, who responds with a firm no. He has no interest in having a boss or working for a wage. He prefers the freedom of being a freelancer, of being paid for a job done. Fa counters, you'd better work off that lunch you just ate then. Urging everyone to stop eating, Judo insists that no meal is worth having a job and is flabbergasted that none of his friends agree with him. When Lena tries once again to convince him, he slaps the lunchbox out of her hands into the ground, sending food flying. Fa looks angry, Shinta and Kum horrified. Stepping toward Judo, Fa gives him a ringing slap. He grabs her by the normal suit and raises his fist before noticing that Shinta and Kum are carefully picking up the food, and Fa has tears in her eyes. Do you think we eat like this all the time? Still angry, Judo pulls away and leaves the Argama by himself. As he storms off through the junkyard, he somehow hears Mashima's voice. In a mansion in the foothills, Damar and his wife prepare to leave the colony. With the ill-gotten gains of his abuse of his position, they have enough money even to move back to Earth. Their things are packed, and their shuttle leaves soon, but Damar delays. The butler forgot to pack the wine collection! Finally leaving the Endra, Mashima decides to leave the Gaza Sea wingmen behind. Not only does he want a fair fight with the Zeta, the public knows that the Gaza Seas are Axis mobile suits. His new Zasa is much less recognizable. Very conscious of avoiding damage to the colony or danger to the populace, Mashima lands in the less densely populated area of the foothills, coincidentally right on Damar's front yard. Struggling to maneuver in the gravity of the colony, the Zasa stumbles and falls directly on top of Damar's wine cellar. The loosened ground causes a landslide and sends the mansion skidding down slope. Damar is certain Mashima has done this on purpose. Revenge for being bled by the corrupt official. News of Mashima's landing reaches the Argama. Bicho doesn't understand why they should care about damage uptown, but L points out that it could spread, and there are plenty of schools and hospitals near there. Hearing the word hospital, Fa immediately thinks of Camille. The Methus is a wreck, barely functional and leaking oil, but Fa takes off in it anyway, and Judo's friends take a car and go looking for him. Outside, Judo sees the Methus leading the Zasa away from the foothills and into the junkyard, and he follows on foot. The Zasa punches the Methus, knocking it to the ground in a shower of debris. Mashima is about to strike with his beam saber when the Zeta arrives. Determined to show Bright that they don't need that snotty Judo kid, Astonaji is piloting. But he struggles with the Zeta, barely managing to dodge the more serious of Mashima's attacks, and is knocked back stopping just short of crushing a small guard shack and the unlucky guard beside it. Mashima thinks the pilot must be shielding the guard shack with the Zeta, and while he stands there admiring such a chivalrous spirit, Fa charges him with the Methus, sending him crashing into a mound of junk. She punches at him, but he catches the Methus' hand in the Zasa's and tears the arm right off. Still, it's two against one, and Mashima temporarily retreats, calling the Endra for reinforcements. Judo and his friends arrive in the junkyard where the Methus and the Zeta wait. 
Judo criticizes Ostonaji's piloting, but when Fa encourages him to get into the Zeta, he insists he won't fall for that trick. Ostonaji and El criticize, Ino and Lina encourage, Fa begs, and Judo finally agrees to get into the Zeta, but only to pay them back for lunch. The Zeta launches, and the Methus, no longer able to fly, follows on foot. The Zeta hides before emerging to stab one Gazasi through and bicycle kick the other into one of the mountains of garbage. Judo dodges the Zasa's missiles before receiving a warning from his friends on the Methus. Above you, they call, and he moves just in time to avoid being skewered by a beam saber. Mashima fires missiles point-blank at the Zeta, stunning Judo, who barely manages to parry a beam saber strike before, in a stunning reversal, he cuts off one of the Zasa's legs. Armed with a girder, Fa charges the Methus at the Zasa's back, driving it away from the Zeta. Outnumbered again, Mashima retreats. Back at the Argama, Lina and the other kids from Shangri-La convince Judo to stay on, and word arrives that the repair ship La Vienne Rose is drawing near. So this episode, the Zissa Menace, is really good. I appreciate it more every time I watch it, and because of the podcast making process, I've now watched it four or five times in the last week. And it's so good that it makes me even angrier about last week than I already was. (laughs) And the reason this episode being so good made me so mad. Um, Actually, there's like a whole bunch of reasons. And I'm probably going to continue explaining this through the whole talkback, no matter what else Nina tries to talk about. But here we have, when you compare them next to each other, two episodes that accomplish basically the same thing. And in fact, in terms of their overall structure, their architecture, they hit pretty much the same story beats. They push the characters forward in pretty much the same ways. Everybody from Judo, who's sort of at the center of it and is dealing with this question of will he or won't he join the Argama and become the Zeta's pilot properly, making a a kind of decision, if you will, uh, to Mashima, who is facing this question of what underhanded, unchivalrous behavior is necessary to accomplish his goals and do his duty for Lady Haman. This applies to Bright and Lena and the other kids in Judo's gang. Like, the whole group of them are all, in both of these episodes, facing the same questions and coming to the same answers. Much of how the episode works in terms of a threat to something in the colony outside of the Argama prompts Fa to go out in a mobile suit. She has trouble. Uh, Then Judo needs to go and take the Zeta from somebody else and use it to resolve the problem. Like, all of this is the same in both episodes. But this episode does it so well. It has so much nuance and understanding and sympathy for its characters. It hits the right emotional beats. Versus the last episode, which was just like, it was a mess. It had good things going on, but overall it was a mess and ultimately didn't even bring us to that final decision of Judo deciding to join the Argama. So you have two episodes that do precisely the same thing. And yet one of them is really good. One of them is really bad. And if I had to make an honest recommendation to someone who was watching Gundam Double Zeta for fun and not because they have somehow lucked into it being their job... (laughs) I would say, do not watch Judo's decision. Just ignore it. Pretend it doesn't exist. There is nothing you need in that episode that this one doesn't give you. 
this episode makes such a strong case for all of these decisions. This episode really shows us the process by which most of these characters come to the decisions they come to. Interestingly, I think it does the worst job of this with judo of everyone. Hmm. But that may just be because I sort of disapprove about the way that comes about. <laughs> this episode has a lot to say about judo, and a lot of it is pretty negative. This is maybe the first episode that really portrays judo as like not just a lovable rapscallion, but kind of a jerk. I had so many conflicting emotions and so many different scenes from this episode. Uh, since you brought up judo as a jerk, let's talk about the scene where they're all being treated to lunch aboard the Argama. Phenomenal scene. I think really brilliant to include it and to do it the way they did. Here we have kids who are marveling at the fact that people have private rooms. Each room has its own toilet and bath, which longtime listeners will remember I talked about bathhouses back in season one because the white base had communal bathing facilities. Uh, and even in the mid 80s, there would still probably have been many housing situations that had shared toilets like per floor <laughs> rather than for each unit and which would not have had a bath in the apartment. You would have gone to a communal bathhouse in your neighborhood. Air conditioning, heating, this is remarkable to them. Obviously, you would have to heat the interior of a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> but even now, central heating is not a given in Japanese housing. When I studied abroad, the house that I lived in did not have central heating. And this was in Kyoto. It snowed. <laughs> it got cold. But they used space heaters. They used sort of heating appliances. There was no central heat in the house. All of this makes it feel very fancy to the kids from Shangri-La. And all of it is real, right? They didn't fake those things. However, they also are eating these meals and like, oh, they, these guys eat so well too. And that's a bait and switch. Mm -hmm. I'm sure part of it is if we feed them a good meal, they're going to be better disposed towards us. We want them to feel like life aboard the Argama will be like this. However, there's also an element of hospitality culture that when you host people, you serve your best food, that guests receive better <laughs> than your in-group does. And this is part of a lot of different cultures that have these kind of ideas about hospitality. And the reason I think that hospitality enters into it and not just it being a bait and switch is because when Judo knocks the food out of Lena's hand, Fa's reaction is anger and then despair <laughs> when he raises his fist to her she's crying she says to him do you think we eat like this all the time we are giving you our very best and there's a sense in her comment that he should have known that that he should have realized because of the situation that they would be giving him the best that they have that this is sort of like a, a social convention that he should have thought of <laughs> Yeah, and just the like, the sheer wastefulness of knocking nice food onto the ground, regardless of all the other circumstances around it. I'll admit, I didn't actually think of the hospitality element to it. That's really good. I was thinking of it mostly in terms of the sort of two offers that Bright is implicitly making here. 
The first one is the like solid, real material inducements. Good food, nice places to sleep, bathrooms in the room. Wages. That's true. He does offer them wages. And he addresses them very respectfully. I don't know if you noticed. He, he gets a bit formal. And in the translation, he addresses them as gentlemen. It's formal language. It's respectful. And you can tell that in his mannerisms as well, the way he's drawn in this scene. Although there is that little switch, there's a little flash when he proposes that he could speak to their parents. He knows <laughs> that this is the proper thing to say. He almost certainly knows that it's not necessary either. It's just part of the form of making this request. But I thought he meant that seriously. I think on the off chance that any of them had parents who needed convincing, Bright would have actually done that the same way he talked to Amaro's mother back in First Gundam. But he does this thing with his eyes when he says it that makes me think he knows that it doesn't really need to be done. There's also, in addition to that real solid material inducement, uh, a second and more important sell, which is this is the chance at a better life, a more exciting life, an entirely different class of life, the chance to go out into space and do something meaningful. One thing I really like about this scene is that this happens directly after Mashima talks about needing to do underhanded things in order to do what's necessary. And then we go directly from that into Bright doing a very underhanded thing with these lavish lunches in order to, as Judo puts it later, get some child labor out of them. Also on the underhanded side, we have Fa's whole comment about, oh, so you believe in being paid for work done. Okay, work off the lunch we just gave you. <laughs> and later when she brings up Camille and the ways in which she pressures Judo to pilot the Zeta feel very emotionally manipulative and icky to me. Really? I didn't get that from her at all. But Judo's complaints about child labor ring a bit false when he is happily working and doesn't seem to have any distaste for work. <laughs> sure, although he gets to be his own boss. Judo's aversion to the stability of wages. Not that there aren't people now who certainly feel that way, who would much rather be their own boss and could never work at a company or, or for someone else. Uh, for a lot of young people now, the stability and benefits inherent in wages totally override <laughs> any other concerns, and it sounds like a dream, but we have to remember that this is the bubble economy. Yes. I had a professor when I was studying abroad who described being able to work construction uh, two or three days a week and then just like drink and party for two to three days. Because the wages from that sort of gig work were so good. Right. There was so much work available, so little unemployment, and the wages were so good that you could work a couple days, goof off a couple days, work a couple days, and have no problem paying your living expenses. And so for sort of a young, rebellious person who bridles an authority of any kind, why would you take a wage job? And, you know, I think Judo here is being honest. This is a real objection that he does have with this situation. It is a reason why he doesn't want to sign on with the Arkema. But the last scene of the episode reveals that it's probably not the reason. I think the reason Judo doesn't want to sign on with the Arkema is because he knows that if he does that, 
he will either be leaving his younger sister behind or she'll need to give up her schooling and come with them. And for Judo, the dream has never been about himself. The dream has always been that he'll be able to send Lena to a better school and that she will have a better, you know, more conventional, secure life. I also think the group dynamics are very important in this episode. Bright gets surprised that nobody goes with Judo when Judo leaves. And they all play it off as, hey, we're all individuals. We all make our own choices. He's not their leader. They don't have a leader. However, his decision to stay at the end, his decision to join them feels entirely a product of everyone working on him, right? He is swayed by the group. Right. I mean, there's that scene where each one of them in turn convinces him to do it. And some of them encourage him. Some of them tease him. Some, you know, they're all offering different <laughs> inducements. They're all prodding him in different ways. He is deciding in that moment to be governed by the group rather than his own impulses. He's changed from earlier in the episode where everyone else wants to stay and he says, no way, not me. To at the end, still sort of feeling like this isn't for him, but everyone who matters to him says he should do it. He begrudgingly, I think, decides to go with what all of these people who are close to him want for him, rather than to go with his first impulse. As long as we're talking about Judo and his jerkness, we have to address what happens during that lunchboxes scene after Fa slaps him. Because Judo looked like he was about to haul off and punch Fa. Not a slap. Not a shove. Not a few angry words. If Bright hadn't interceded, Judo may very well have slugged her. I don't know that he would have. I think he was just menacing her, but that's not much better. And I think the thing is, I don't think Judo views Fa as a person. Not yet. I think Judo views Fa as an authority figure, as a representative of the military-industrial AUG complex. I also got the sense at the end of that scene that a big part of his storming off is that he feels ashamed. Yeah, 100%. He's just raised his fist to Fa. He's got her by the lapel. He looks over his shoulder and Shinta and Kum are picking up the food off the floor, almost certainly so that somebody can still eat it. Mm -hmm. He is suddenly confronted with, oh, I did a really awful thing. He wasn't thinking... That anger that has always been there flashed to the surface. He lashed out and he realizes that he's done something terrible. And so he storms off. Like I said, this is an episode that understands its characters. It's sympathetic to them even when it is making them behave badly. And this makes me think of nothing so much as the scene right before Astanaji takes the Zeta out when Bright and Astanaji are shouting at each other. Uh, they're so angry at each other about this situation. I feel like we have never seen Astonaji mad like no, this. but of course he would be under these circumstances. The way he's been treated, the stress he's been under. As he points out to these kids who, frankly, do not understand what's been happening at all or the position that the Argama is in, they have their backs to the wall. They have no resources. A bunch of their crew are injured and in the hospital. They are completely stranded. And then, you know, a bunch of 
smart kids are mouthing off to him and he's supposed to cater to them and be extra nice to them because this kid who might be a new type needs to join the crew. <laughs> well, and here we see, I think, a class divide between Bright and Astanaji. Bright is a young, accomplished officer, a hero of the war. But before that, he was an elite raised on Earth. He went to the staff college. He like did the whole thing. Um, and so for Bright, this game of like putting on a certain kind of face, presenting a certain kind of image to talk people around, playing the political game. You know, he's playing it with teenagers, but that's what Bright is doing here. This is a level of, of fluid social interaction that Bright is very comfortable with. And Astanaji just is not. Like, well, Astanaji is not comfortable pretending to be somebody he's not. Bright also just switches more easily between, you know, talking about the kids in a more dismissive way or demanding respect as the captain of a ship and, oh, I'm going to be extra nice to you right now because I need something from you. I think Astanaji is standing there like, I am an experienced professional. Why do I have to put up with this, like, disrespect and this nonsense from these kids? I do not understand why I have to do this. This is so beneath me and my skills. I know we need help, but why do we need this help? I also absolutely thought he was going to die this episode. The minute he got in the Zeta, I was uh, like, oh, dang, are we losing Astanaji? That would have been heartbreaking. Yes, it would have been. And I feel like if this were a different series, uh, that would have been it. May very well have been. I am really glad that Asanaji got into the Zeta Gundam. Like, it's really nice to see him being so active, to have so much to do, developing his character in this way, and also showing, like, what happens when a non-pilot tries to pilot. It's also a nice counterbalance to the previous episode, which was all about making Fa look incompetent. Whereas here, this episode does a lot to undermine that and to present a counter-narrative. I actually think if you go and you watch the episodes of Double Zeta that we've covered so far, and you pay attention to who is writing them, you can track two very different approaches to the treatment of Fa. Um, she's so brave she in this is. episode. She's so, <laughs> she's so brave. Uh, and the circumstances that she is in make it impossible for her to succeed. That's the difference. If Suzuki is writing an episode, Fa will be in it. Fa will be unable to succeed because like, the narrative machinery requires Fa to fail so that Judo can succeed. And like, Judo is our new main character. Judo has to succeed for the story to work. But if Suzuki is writing the episode, external circumstances will make it impossible for Fa to succeed. Her car will get stuck. The Methus will just be like completely inadequate to the circumstances. It'll get an arm torn off, whatever it is. Whereas if Endo is writing the episode, Fa will fail because Fa is incompetent, because Fa is unable to pilot correctly, because Fa, you know, whatever it is, the, the failure will be internal to Fa. In this episode, when she hears that the hospital where Camille is at is in peril and Fa sorties in the busted up Methus with no orders, we get a brief conversation between Bright and Astanaji about the state of the mobile suits. And they say, Fa can't handle the Zeta. What about the Methus? This does a lot. It's a one line of dialogue, but it does an enormous amount for the story. One, it tells us that there's something special about the Zeta, that the Zeta is maybe it's finely tuned for Camille. Maybe it's just like 
too much impulse, too much power for a normal pilot to be able to handle it. But it doesn't say that Fa can't handle any mobile suit. It doesn't say that Fa is not a good pilot. It just says that Fa can't handle the Zeta specifically. So let's send her out in the other one. Oh, but the other one is completely wrecked. It's barely holding it together. It's even leaking oil. And she takes it anyway. And we never see Camille, but he's still a presence because the reason Fa goes out so suddenly is because the locals point out the fighting is near where the hospitals are. Like it could spread to where the hospital is. And she has to protect Camille. Yeah. And then once she's out there, she has to help whoever is out there with her. We see some of the best teamwork, I think, we've seen in a long time. And she's not doing poorly against Mashima. Like, if the Methos were a better mobile suit, who knows, she might have won that fight instead of having its arm torn off. Yeah, that was one of those fight details that really accentuates the difference in uh, sort of mechanical power and strength. You know, if the Zasa can just, like, grab an arm off another mobile suit and rip it off, then we're talking about completely different levels. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to first Gundam when the Gundam tore the, like, face off of Azaku. Completely different levels. It was small, but another thing I really enjoyed in the fight scenes in this episode is that there's a moment when Mashima attacks and Judo and the Zeta parries it. We see a lot of clashes. We see a lot of straight-up dodging. It's rare that we see parries. Just a really clever fight choreography throughout this whole episode. I have in my notes, what a good setting for a fight this junkyard is. The way they incorporate the terrain, the way they're moving in and out of the junkyard, the way scrap metal falling on mobile suits is part of the fight is just, it's so good. <laughs> it's so smart. It's a really good fight. Fa at the end with the girder couched like a lance smashing into the Zissa. I love it. I, I love it so much. I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier about the hospital, because it's another element that differentiates this episode from the prior one. And I did say I was going to keep coming back to that, this whole talk <laughs> back. The prior episode, Judo's decision, for the events of it to take place requires so many weird leaps of logic, so many coincidences. Like, the fight happens because Gemon is flying by and he sees that Shinta and Kum have drawn a Z and a G on the field of the school. And he thinks, ZG, that must be Zeta Gundam. That must be a challenge from me. I'm going to land here and menace the school. Like that on its own is just a, a weird mess of coincidences and, and non sequitur logic. I have a theory about that, but finish your thought. Um. You know, and earlier in the episode, Judo deciding to go to school. What? Why would he do that? I sort of get how it flows out of that conversation, but it doesn't seem like authentic Judo in that moment. So for that episode to hold together, it requires some of these uh, narrative leaps that don't quite work. Whereas in this one, everything makes sense. From the beginning, you get that conversation with Mashima and Gotten and Damar, where they're talking about the risk to the colony and the risk to the like nice uptown houses. But then when Mashima goes into the colony, he's thinking, 
because of that conversation, I want to minimize the damage, I'll go to the sparsely populated area. This itself is interesting because it's unclear if Mashima like doesn't realize that the sparsely populated area would be the nice expensive area. That was my interpretation because he sort of doesn't understand politics at all, <laughs> we have discovered, uh, and, and may not even really understand the class dynamics outside of Axis Zeon. Presumably there are rich and poor on the asteroid axis, but there isn't you know, a nice uptown hilly district with big mansions where the rich people live, surely their quarters are differentiated in some other way. He just might not understand it. And or Mashima just like values the human cost over the property damage. But either way, he goes to the sparsely populated area because in his mind, the logic works that that minimizes the damage. However, of course, the essential infrastructure like the hospital is in the nice part of town. So Camille is threatened. So Fa has to go out. All of that fits together. And of course, Fa would then try to lead him away from the hospital back towards the junkyard. Now, I'm not saying that Endo is a bad writer. He wrote some of Zeta's best episodes, including The Climactic 2 from the finale. But when you look at two episodes like these that are so similar, and yet one of them is so much better. And then you look at the careers of the respective writers. It feels like such an indictment of the anime industry as a whole that Suzuki basically disappeared from public life after Double Zeta and hasn't worked in anime since then. Whereas Endo went on to have a long and extremely prolific writing career that continues today. So I mentioned I had a theory about Gemon. Uh, this is another episode where, as we've seen in previous ones, various people misinterpret other people's motives and behavior. We have Damar thinking that Mashima has landed in front of his house because he wants revenge. <laughs> we have Mashima thinking that Astonaji has knelt the Zeta in front of that guard shack on purpose to defend it. What all of these misunderstandings have in common is that everyone superimposes themselves over the behavior of other people. Mm. Gemon interprets the big ZG as a challenge because he is all about big, brash, sort of hyper-masculine gestures. He is all about violence, challenges. Bravado, swagger. Yes. Mashima looks at everything through the lens of his own idea of chivalry and honor. Damar thinks Mashima wants revenge because if somebody had been bilking him of a lot of money, he would want revenge. Which is, in fact, what he does at the end of the episode. He says he's going to go and get revenge for the damage to his house. I'll be interested to see if this continues through the season. I suspect it will. I suspect <laughs> that having had it come up so often, we are going to have a long-running theme of people viewing other people's behavior through the lens of their own worldview. And as such, like ascribing meaning to it that isn't meant to be there, <laughs> that is not intended. One of the things that various people involved in the production of Gundam have said is one of its key themes is the impossibility of understanding each other. We have talked about class many times <laughs> with Double Zeta. It's coming up again. 
really this episode puts it into starker relief than any prior one. The opening scene, we have Damar explicitly valuing the property of wealthy people as the potential thing that needs to be protected. You know, he's not concerned about the slums being damaged. He's not concerned about general damage or disruption in the colony. He's concerned about, oh, there could be trouble if there's damage to the parts of the colony where wealthy people live. He brings up both an ability and a willingness to control and suppress the media. He also expresses a fear about a riot breaking out. And the word he uses is probably bodo, which would mean a riot, but also a revolt, an uprising, a revolution. Very clearly, the lower classes rising up to threaten the upper class. Um, I am a little unsure about the translation in this section. When he switches from talking about a riot to suppressing the media, the transition doesn't entirely make sense. And the words for riot, bodo, and for media, hodo, are so similar. And Demar's his way of speaking is so unique and his accent is so strong. So I'm not entirely certain that he is talking about a riot and the media. He could be talking about one or the other. And it becomes very clear that he has been abusing his position to line his pockets for some time. And this scene and further scenes with Damar could be just a general uh, comment on government corruption. It's certainly something that is an issue in Japan. However, various things that he goes on to say, I think, make it very clear that this is about a corrupt colonial official. Yes. He's cleaned the place out with the intention of going back to the metropole. <laughs> he wants to go back to Earth. He is in a position of power here in Shangri-La, but he doesn't care about what happens in Shangri-La. He doesn't care about the conditions in Shangri-La because ultimately his plan is to leave. To leech as much money out of the colony as he can to exploit his position. One of the problems inherent in like colonial officialdom is that you bring somebody who's not from the place, <laughs> who doesn't intend to stay in the place, but is supposed to govern the place. Right. And so their primary concern is always going to be how that place can enrich their point of origin and the place that they're going to return to eventually. Like their concerns are not for the local place that they're governing. Their concerns are for the metropole or the, the wider area. I mean, this is a problem so inherent in the colonial structure, in the imperial structure, that it goes all the way back to the Roman Empire and probably before that too. You know, there are countless tracts about the corruption of the imperial officials out in the provinces. And the way their system worked, to be appointed to a position of power out in the colonies required a huge investment of money, calling in all kinds of favors. Basically, you spend all of your resources getting a position out in the provinces. You got the very best one you could. And then you went there and you spent a year or two years or however long your posting was just enriching yourself, just leeching all the money that you could out by exploiting your position. And if you did it well, you would make so much money that you would return a much wealthier person. And you could then roll that into another better posting somewhere else where you'd get more money and then so on and so forth. This is why when the briefcase full of gold shows up in their offices and Chimata is like, uh, should we really accept this? Damar's like, you will never get promoted with that attitude. And he doesn't mean the people up top will appreciate your 
gold snatching impulses and give you a promotion. He means if you stay a poor colonial official, you will always be a poor colonial official. But if you become a rich person back on Earth, then maybe you'll get a better position out in the colonies. So I actually think the willingness to take a bribe, irrespective of the money involved, is also significant because if you're part of a system that's built on bribery and extortion and corruption, there's a degree to which you can trust other people who willingly engage in that system. You know where they stand and you know what levers they have and you know how to work on them. A guy who won't take a bribe, what do you do with a guy like that? How can you, if you're a bribe taking person, <laughs> how can you trust the guy who won't take a bribe? That's fair, yeah. <laughs> An honest person can't succeed in a corrupt system. In addition to the various other aspects of the Damar character that are meant to show us how corrupt he is, he's obviously very into his wine collection. I tried to do a little research and had trouble finding specifics about the perception of wine in Japan in the 1980s or wine imports or things like that, but... Uh, I have in my head that I know from other reading I've done previously, possibly other anime, maybe from reading Drops of God, which is a manga about wine, I don't know, but that wine had a very high class perception, as did a lot of foreign goods in Japan at this time. Imports were increasing, in particular of luxury goods, and so it was very high class to be able to buy French wine. It was a mark of status. It would have been very expensive because of import duties. It's very much the kind of hobby to engage in to show off how wealthy and high class you are. This is one of the ways in which we see that Japan has been transposed onto the space colonies. And Earth is really Europe and the United States, maybe Canada. Because he talks about sampling the wines of Earth the way one would talk about sampling the wines of France or Italy. He has this large collection of wines that he is personally very proud of, but that is nonetheless juxtaposed against the wines of Earth. Presumably, his wines are mostly domestic, space colony-produced wines. Or even if he has wine from Earth in his collection... You know, sampling the wines of Earth, he may be thinking about visiting vineyards, you know, like getting to have that direct experience rather than simply being a, a collector. And how interesting is it that Damar, who is basically at the top of the social and economic hierarchy of Shangri-La, nonetheless aspires to a yet higher station because presumably, no matter how wealthy and powerful you are in the colonies, you are still considered a lower class person compared to the true elites who reside on Earth. To end with something very fun, uh, it would appear that at least for the time being, I'm going to get my wish when it comes to Yazan. <laughs> He's going to <laughs> appear every episode, uh, speed toward the battle to try and steal a mobile suit or something, uh, and constantly be foiled in increasingly ridiculous ways. This time he steals a moped and then uh, crashes it and is buried in junk. It's great. It's real good. I also love that scene at the end where Torres comes in with the message from Chimata, and it's Torres, Asnaji, and Bright all on the bridge together. And Torres is like, oh yeah, his life has been so much better since his annoying boss disappeared. 
And Bright is like, annoying boss? What are you talking about, Torres? And I almost think there's a, a look between Torres and Astanaji there. Hilarious. <laughs> Bright, you're the annoying boss. <laughs> And now, Nina's research on Don Quixote. I mentioned offhand a few weeks ago in a talkback that Mashima could be inspired by Don Quixote. As I've never read the novel and was basing that entirely off some general knowledge of the famous story and characters, it seemed like a good avenue for research. I'll summarize some of what happens in the novel and its themes, and the principal characters, look at the ways in which the novel is reflected, in Mashima, Goten, and possibly others, and look at the history of Don Quixote in Japan. When did it first appear in translation? Is it popular? Have there been manga or anime adaptations? The full title of the story is El Ingenioso Hidalgo Don Quixote de la Mancha, or The Ingenious Hidalgo Don Quixote de la Mancha. Written by Spanish author Miguel de Cervantes, it was published in two parts the first in 1605 and the second in 1615. After the first part of Don Quixote was published, there was a long gap before Cervantes published the second part. Mm -hmm. In the interim, at least one other author published their own Don Quixote Part Two, which reportedly was not very good and may have in fact made Cervantes so angry that he actually went ahead and finished Don Quixote, that, that it may have actually forced Cervantes to finish Don Quixote properly, so don't ever let anyone say that fan fiction never accomplished anything. Yeah, I read about that, but I hadn't uh, hadn't included it in my write-up because it doesn't directly relate to Double Zeta, but he spends a lot of the text of the second Don Quixote book having the characters refute the <laughs> the misguided rumors and the lies of this other Don Quixote book. <laughs> <laughs> it is widely regarded as a prototypical European novel, though as with all similar discussions, this is something people argue over, define European and define novel. But it's been hugely influential regardless, and within only seven years of its initial publishing, it had already been translated into French, English, German, and Italian. It is the origin of the word quixotic, which means exceedingly idealistic, unrealistic, and impractical. The main character, Don Quixote, is a middle-aged man obsessed with chivalric stories and decides that he wants to live like an age of chivalry hero. The books drive him mad. Sidebar, there is a line in the opening song about adults telling kids you watch too much TV, an accusation usually leveled at kids when they say things that are imaginative, outlandish, and unrealistic. Given that reading too much fiction is the inciting event of Don Quixote, <laughs> it's clear that the idea that fiction has an adverse effect on people's sense of reality is very old indeed. A quick note about this. Um, our listeners may be familiar with something called Chunibio syndrome, which is a term that's become popular in the last 20 years or so. Uh, comes from the Japanese to describe a person who has uh, literally like second year middle school student syndrome, which is this thing that a lot of people, you know, 12, 13, 14 display 
where they act as though they have all of these experiences and often supernatural powers uh, that they patently and obviously do not actually have in real life. The allegation often leveled at these kids is that they have watched way too much anime and read way too much manga and have like developed this complex where they believe that they are in fact a super special magical ninja with crazy incredible mind powers. And the reason I bring that up is because this syndrome is associated in the Japanese mind uh, with Don Quixote. Don Quixote is imagined to be sort of the progenitor of this idea. To get back to our main character, he is obsessed with honor and glory and hungers for a sense of purpose and beauty, a sense of order in the world, all things that he feels that the real world of his time lacks. It is unclear throughout the novel to what extent he knowingly chooses this path and to what degree he is possibly mentally ill and disconnected from reality. Despite his apparent insanity, he is very intelligent and throughout the novel discusses literature, government, soldiering, and other important topics of the day. He takes as his squire Sancho Panza, a farmer and a servant, and as his mighty steed, an aged barn horse. <laughs> Inns become castles and windmills become giants. He believes that to be a knight like the ones in his stories, he needs to have a lady love. So he imagines one, a princess named Dulcinea, and imbues her with every possible beauty and virtue. Later in the story, it is revealed that she is based on a real woman, Aldonza Lorenzo, who is pretty much the opposite of the woman he describes earthy and vulgar rather than fair and modest, a peasant rather than a princess, uh, and a sex worker rather than a medieval vision of maidenly virtue. Sancho is Don Quixote's sidekick and foil. An everyman, Sancho is practical and skeptical, clever, obedient, and loyal to his master in spite of everything. He tries to keep his master out of trouble and is often the one fixing things when trouble comes along. Don Quixote and Sancho Panza travel through Spain in search of glory and adventure. In the process, Don Quixote unwittingly helps a few people, but mostly causes a great deal of difficulty for people he meets and interacts with. He is also preyed upon, made fun of, and scammed. In the end, Don Quixote is vanquished. Beaten and dying, he regains his sanity and forswears all of the fine old chivalric truths that he lived by. The novel has had many differing interpretations over time. Uh, I'm going to quote the Wikipedia page because I thought this part was quite well written and sums it up very nicely. The novel can be considered a satire of orthodoxy, veracity, and even nationalism. When first published, Don Quixote was usually interpreted as a comic novel. After the French Revolution, it was better known for its central ethic that individuals can be right while society is wrong and disenchanting. In the 19th century, it was seen as a social commentary, but no one could easily tell whose side Cervantes was on. <laughs> Many critics came to view the work as a tragedy in which Don Quixote's idealism and nobility are viewed by the post-chivalric world as insane and are defeated and rendered useless by common reality. To bring all of this back to Double Zeta, first we have Mashima. The obvious anachronistic references to himself as a knight plus the way people around him react to his odd reveries, little speeches, and obsession with Haman, make clear that he is very out of step with the world around him. 
but he also seems very idealistic. He truly thinks that in supporting Axis, he will help create a better world. His reaction to Judo in the first few fights and Astonaji in the most recent one even fit this. Don Quixote imagines windmills to be giants. Mashima imagines the erratic movements of the Zeta to be the work of a clever and experienced foe, an opponent who has honor and chivalry. His Haman is in many ways the opposite of the Haman we've seen. Soft and gentle rather than harsh and fierce. Alluring, admiring toward Mashima, and interested in the betterment of life for space noids rather than scheming, manipulative, violent, and power-hungry. And then we have poor Gotten, constantly making practical suggestions only to be ignored or overridden. He knows how ridiculous Mashima is, but is never disrespectful and doesn't undermine him. He's often left cleaning up Mashima's messes or dealing with the practical side of things for Mashima. The earliest Japanese translation is from 1893, which is about what we would expect based on what we know about the reopening of the country, the Meiji Restoration, etc. Additional translations came out frequently from the 1940s through the 1980s. There are condensed and illustrated versions for children, there's at least one manga, and there have been Japanese performances of the ballet and theatrical productions, many of them starring famous performers. Yeah, I have heard that it's very popular in Japan, the Don Quixote story. So the story is very popular, but the book is not as influential in the literary world. So far, you've presented a whole bunch of really strong connections between Don Quixote and Double Zeta. One um, much more tangential, but potential one, is, you know, the Geze looks a lot like a windmill. <laughs> like, it's not exactly a windmill mobile suit hybrid, but, you know, it's pretty close. And it has that weird way that it swings its arms around. And and it's kind of like the shape of it overall, plus the four arms. It's possible. There is an international chain of Japanese discount stores called Don Quixote, or Donkey for short. <laughs> <laughs> and probably most relevant to our work is that there was a TV anime based on Don Quixote that aired in 1980 and had a VHS release in 1984, which is titled Zukoke Naito Don de la Mancha, or Foolish Night Don de la Mancha. Tom discovered that one of the episode directors for Double Zeta, who directed episode 4, was also an episode director on Zukoke Naito. His name is Sekita Osamu. He was also a unit director on First Gundam and a storyboard artist and episode director for Zeta. And there you have it. Some pretty strong evidence <laughs> that Mashima and Goten were inspired by Don Quixote. I will be interested to see if he gets a similarly disillusioning end. That would be a spoiler. <laughs> Next time on episode 3.6, Leaving Home, we cover Double Zeta episodes 7 and 8 and New Typefaces Losing the War for Hearts and Minds Henpecked. Fa is an experienced veteran of dozens of battles! Bok bok. A mixture of butter and flour used for thickening sauces. 
You can't hurt the blob. I rescind my previous liking of judo. I do not like judo anymore. Vegetarian Chimata and Carnivore Yazan. I am once again asking for justice for Fa. And the gift of vengeance. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting... Mashima's wholesome respect for Haman is the first healthy relationship in Gundam to date. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion comes from Rose. Thank you, Rose. And thank you for listening. I thought you went, ugh. Yes, but that was while we were watching the episode. <laughs> Let's just say that I got eight hours of sleep last night. I haven't slept that much in weeks. No, you have not. It was pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. Okay, but on the theme of this episode and doing underhanded things, uh... It's I all kinda ma- do. It's all made up, so. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> we'll we'll see if I'm right. You should ask me about that. Sorry. That's okay. Sometimes it's better if I don't talk and you just keep talking. Mm-hmm. Um with which part of it do you want me to ask you about? <laughs> I, like the fact that it made you angry or um, yeah, Why I guess that's what I had. So good, or why it being good made me angry. But I know why. <laughs> All right, then I'm just gonna I'm just gonna run through it. <laughs> In that scope, we are so small, mm-hmm. and that feeling of smallness can either depress you because you're like, oh no, all of my accomplishments are so small, or it can sort of feel like a relief because it's like, oh yeah, all of my f***-ups are so small. Yep. In the great scheme of, like, astronomical time. (laughs) Speaking of accomplishments and f***-ups, do you want to talk about Gundam Double Zeta? Let's do it. All right. Uh, We did not talk about how we want to structure this at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I can sort of conceive of some categories, or we can just kind of go through the episode. 
Um, well, I know where I want to start. Okay. Um, I think I have a good starting point. All right, let's just go from there then. All right. Not going to include that in the podcast. <laughs> but, like, that's the logical conclusion from that, right? You, you're looking at me like you expect me to say something. Oh, I'm wondering, do you have anything to add? I'm, I'm trying to think of something. Okay. It's fine. Um, is that everything? I think that's everything. <gasps> Yay! <laughs> and I'm going to do a bunch of silly voices and then we're going to figure out which is the right silly voice, okay? Yeah, okay. okay. <sighs> Not that one. <laughs> it was awful, Guildenstern. God, that was terrible. Was it? No, it was fantastic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really good. Okay. Um, I think we call it there. Yeah, I think though... I-